Well, um, next week, Chris is going to lead us off in Exodus, and so we have a standalone sermon today. We're going to be looking at, if you have your Bibles, the book of Isaiah. Uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. We're looking at a passage today in Isaiah 6 that, for me, has been foundational in my Christian life. It's been one that has shaped me. It's been one that continues to challenge me in my walk with Christ and in me in, in, in pursuing mission as a lifestyle. And, but really, where mission comes from, where the desire to live out a lifestyle of sharing the gospel, uh, being an instrument in the Redeemer's hands, where does that come from? And Isaiah 6 just gives us such a great picture of that. Isaiah in Isaiah 6 is going to see a vision of God. He's going to see a vision of himself. And he's going to receive a vision. And a vision that I would say is for us today. So let's stand for the reading of God's word in Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. Isaiah's vision of the Lord. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with the two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy, majestic God, we are, just those words are so powerful. Um, Who you are in nature, God, what, how Isaiah feels in the atmosphere that he encounters in your presence, God, this is a fitting word for, for me. It's a fitting word for us. And Lord, I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you speak through me God, if there's anyone in this room who needs to hear and be reconciled to you, Lord, would you do that? Would you save them? And God, for us as Christians, Lord, would we continue to be marveled at who you are and your character and your holiness and your glory. And God, may that be the anthem of our lives. May that be the very foundation of what our life is built on. And would that propel us to live a lifestyle of mission for you? God, we ask all this in your gracious and holy name, in the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. 
Well, Isaiah starts off, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In the year King Uzziah died, this, this misses our ears. It's a, for us in our context, we don't really understand. In the year that King Uzziah died, what's the big deal? Who's King Isaiah? Who the heck is I, who, the, who is Uzziah and who is Isaiah? Um, little tongue twister there. This, this word, fail, without context, it's hard to make sense of what Isaiah is feeling and what is going on in the nation of Israel. But if I were to say to you this, June 6, 1944, December 7th, 1944, September 11th, 2001, or one that may not be well recognized, but I was in the town, so it's very res- it resonates well with me. June 12th, 2016. These dates are ones that you know what we're talking about here. Because what are they? Normandy, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, and then the Pulse night shooting. These are dates that when you see in the news, when you hear about, it creates a level of anxiety. It, it creates a tension. What's going on? How could something like this happen? Why did this happen? Are we going to be okay? What is going on with the world? This is the feeling of, of the reality of what's happening in Israel when it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. The Bible gives us some knowledge about King Uzziah. And the, and the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 26 that he actually became king at the age of 16 and reigned for 52 years and started out his king, being king in godliness. And yet he ends, he, he, King Uzziah's reign ends in kind of disgrace where he catches leprosy because he basically tells God to res, give him all the blessings. And he's kind of sequestered to a house away from the house of the Lord. But nonetheless, King Uzziah was revered. He was honored. He was a great king in Israel. Reigned for 52 years. 52 years. Just think about that. That's a long reign. And he dies. And the nation is in panic. Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. And Isaiah's pedigree was a little bit different. Most, if you see in the Bible, the common, the common way a, a, a prophet is, his lifestyle is one of being a peasant. You know, he doesn't come from much, but Isaiah is one of nobility. Isaiah would be more like a, a diplomat, a statesman. He interacted and mingled with the highest of high in the royal courts. He engaged with political figures, kind of, so to speak. He was of high pedigree and very smart, a great writer, not because we're just reading his things a thousand years later, but because you can tell by the way he engages with people. A prophet was a, it's an interesting role that the Lord has because there was no training field. There's no job application for a prophet. He is simply chosen by the Lord. The Lord chooses him. And there is no resignation. You don't resign. You die as a prophet. And the lifespan of a prophet is very short. And in the midst of all of this, that gives us some context. In the midst of utter chaos, Isaiah comes into a temple. He comes into a temple and he sees the throne of God. And he sees God high and exalted, lifted up. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, he says. 
He goes into a temple and sees God high and lifted up. And he sees God in the midst of utter chaos on his throne. In the midst of incredible uncertainty that the nation and Isaiah feels. What is going on? Are we going to be okay? Who's going to be king for us? God is still on his throne. In the midst of incredible doubt, what's going to happen? God is high and lifted up and on his throne. You see, this helps us as believers. This is the, this is the very foundation that we can trust God. When everyone is asking those questions, whether they be about our personal matters or even political matters, personal matters such as, what's going to happen in my life? The diagnosis I just got. Am I going to be okay? Whatever circumstance I'm facing, God is still on his throne. Whether they be political matters, I'm not a very political person. I try to avoid political matters in sermons, but we're in, a, we're in a nation where we're in a culture of rage. There's often a culture of this party is 100% right, and this party is absolutely wrong, and vice versa. So much so where we say, this person has to be out of office or else all is lost, or this person has to be in office or all is lost. Isaiah has a fitting word because that's what, not what we most need. What we most need is what Isaiah sees, which is the Lord high and lifted up on his throne, which he is there forever. He's not surprised. He's not outraged. He is sovereign. He is on his throne and he will be forever. The seraphim yell. We see this right here. He says, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And they're yelling something. Holy, holy, holy. What does that word mean, holy? Simply means to be set apart. Or some translations, it would mean to be cut away. To be totally different. If in the Hebrew language, if you wanted to emphasize something, you doubled it. So in other words, when Jesus often would speak and teach, he would say, truly, truly, or in some translations, verily, verily, what I'm saying to you is absolute truth. But up until this point in the Bible, no one has ever referred to someone by three times. He says, the seraphim, they say, holy, holy, holy. In other words, God is holy to the superlative degree. God, in, in essence, is holy. He is not stained and marred by sin of this world. He is totally different than us. In other words, sometimes if you see something or if something incredible happens or tragic happens, something that is completely set apart, an event, a person, something, you say, holy moly or holy cow. What you're saying is that this moment is set apart. It is totally different from any other moment. But to refer to God as holy, holy, holy. He is of the utmost holy. He embodies holiness. God is the essence of holiness. He is 100% pure. Think about this. He has never told a lie. He has never got sinfully angry. He has never been unnerved, never violent, lustful, impatient, irritable, 
never lacked compassion, never said a wrong word, never said anything wrong, done anything wrong. He is completely and utterly perfect. He is the Holy One, set apart. And to emphasize this, what Isaiah says is he is high and lifted up, which is to show that he is totally different from the sin-marred world and people in it. Isaiah is telling us that God's holiness is so powerful and radiant that even these seraphim are having to hide their face and hide their feet because of the pure radiance and glory that is in God. That God is so glorious and powerful and radiant that even the seraphim, these angelic beings, can't even begin to look at him because of the power of who he is. And these seraphim are flying. They're flying and they're yelling, holy, holy, holy. But when we think of of angels yelling, we often think of it as a high-pitched voice. I'm not going to do it because it would just be embarrassing. I can't get that high, you know. Um, But they are yelling so loud, holy, 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 that the very foundation of the temple that Isaiah is in is starting to shake. It's as if a tornado or an earthquake is happening where he is. It is utter awesome power that Isaiah is seeing. They are not singing as if angels that we see in media and in television They are yelling for the very top of their lungs that God is absolutely holy. That is an awesome thing to think about because they are still doing that right now. Right now, as we speak, they are glorifying God and yelling, holy, holy, holy. And their voice, what Isaiah sees and encounters, their voice is so powerful that the very foundation of where he's standing is shaking. In 2005, there was a movie that came out. It it actually came out in 2004. The movie Saul. Related, right? Um, God's holiness, absolutely non-holiness. I hate scary movies. And I saw this movie and it scared me like nothing has ever scared me. I'm also a wimp. So, but in 2005, Saul 2 came out. And I had a girlfriend and so we went and saw, saw two. The whole time, I'm like, I'm not scared. It was all right. And it was completely terrified me. Um, and if you've ever seen a scary movie, you know, when you get home and you're by yourself in the very dark and there's no TV and you are sitting alone in your bed, naturally, you are scared. Just admit it. At least I was. And I remember I dropped my girlfriend off at home I came up, got in my bed. It was about 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, at the, at the, and, you know when, you're, when your room is totally black, you're starting to get, at least me, get very scared. Because what I know to be true is that that little clown riding on that little bike is somewhere in my room about to trolley off and say, you know, that weird thing he says. And I know he's in here. I'm convinced. And it's absolutely terrifying me. So I, eventually I fall asleep. But what I did not know was that that day in November of 2005, a, a class four tornado was coming my way. And in the middle of the night at 1 a.m., my house starts to shake uncontrollably. 
my garage door at my house was apparently opened and my deadbolt door was ripped off the hinges. I remember being in this house and eventually I wake up and remember I had just seen Saw 2. So I get up in my boxers and cock my arm back and yell, come out. <laughs> and within 15 seconds, eventually realize, oh, there is no clown. I'm in a tornado. <laughs> and it subsides. But what happened next is what I saw, the, the pure devastation of what a tornado can do. And I, my house was not even in the eye of the tornado, not even in the, it really didn't even go through us. We were on the very fringe. I come out of my house and I look to my left and I see my neighbor's, I see my neighbor's roof completely caved in. And as I drove around that town in Newburgh, Indiana, obscure Newburgh, Indiana, I saw house after house of the entire front of the house ripped off completely devastated. Whole roofs of houses were found miles away. When I was awoken, not by the clown, but by the tornado, what I felt was fragile, small, helpless, powerless. And even that is but a very small analogy to what Isaiah is feeling in the temple of God. He is seeing awesome power that has never been witnessed nor will ever be witnessed. If you've ever been in a storm, you know what that feels like. If you've been in a tornado, a hurricane, something like that, the feeling of I am at the, I'm at the disposal of something very powerful. And in the midst of this, what Isaiah says is so true. He says, look at what Isaiah says about himself. He says, he sees the, the seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. It's so fitting that Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips because Encountering the very holiness of God in sinful man, there is but one thing that we can say. Woe is me. The encounter to see the, the awesome holiness and power of God, there is one thing that our hearts naturally, hap, what happens to our hearts, and that's that we see that we are altogether different. He says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. But why does he say a man of unclean lips? Because he has seen angelic beings sing with their lips, holy, holy, holy. But he knows that he cannot enter in with the singing because I am not holy. I fall short. I see and am aware of the absolute sinfulness in my own heart. I can't sing, nor can I be in the presence of a holy God. It's inappropriate. He says, I am devastated so much that I pronounce a curse on myself. Woe is me. You often, if you're familiar with the gospels that Jesus would often say to the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you tithe mint and cumin. And then he would say something else I can't, I can't remember, but then he would also say, woe to you, you're like a whitewashed tomb. On the outside you're beautiful, but in the inside you're full of dead man's bones. What is he doing? He's pronouncing a curse. And Isaiah, seeing the holiness of God, says, woe is me. 
In other words, I am not worthy to be in your presence. What's interesting is that Isaiah is a prophet. A prophet, his mouth is everything. His lips, his job is built on what he says. And even that, even the best part about him, he says is unclean. This is, I believe, how the gospel process happens in the life of a believer. Because the question that can be asked, who can stand before the holiness of God and not truly say, woe is me? We undoubtedly have a sin problem in our life. No one needs to be argued that. We, if I ask anybody, is the world broken? The answer is obviously yes. We have a sin problem. The world is broken. But what are we going to do and what is needed to redeem it? What's the solution? Sinful man has always wrestled with the holiness of God in many ways. New fads, new diets, whatever it would be, it would be to, to kind of gain ourselves, to, to lift ourselves up, to be better than we are, to make ourselves feel better. In our day, when faced with God's holiness, we often diminish it in two ways, religion or comparison. Religion would say that by my own moral effort, by my own ability, I can ascend to the hill of the Lord. That I can, by my own effort, become right with God. This is the teaching of Islam and Judaism. If I can but simply obey the five pillars of Islam, and if Allah is merciful, then maybe I could be made right with God. That God would have mercy. Or in Judaism, the all, all 617 Levitical laws, that if I am just good enough and obey enough, and go to temple enough, that I could be made right with God. But the Bible says something altogether different. Or comparison. It's a bell curve model, right? It's not so much that I need to be perfectly holy, but that I just need to be better than the next man or woman sitting next to me. That if I compare myself horizontally, of course, God has to be merciful to good people. You see these play out Oftentimes, well, I'm not as good as him, but I'm not as bad as her. I'm somewhere in the middle. I passed the test. I passed the curve. This was my testimony. If I'm not that bad of a person, I'm not killing people, I'm not stealing much from people, I'm somewhere in the middle. But it's the wrong standard. God's holiness is the standard. It would be foolish for me to go to my son's basketball practice and slam on a seven-foot goal and by deduction assume that I am a great basketball player. And I have done that. <laughs> Why? Because that's the wrong standard. The standard is God's holiness, perfection, utter holiness. And who has it? No one. No one left to themselves. Oftentimes, I remember working in college ministry and engaging people. Why should God accept you? And the list of reasons are very common even in adult life. I went on a mission trip. I had an emotional, spiritual experience when I was young. It's not good enough. I gave a lot of money to the church and other agencies to really help people. I'm a pretty altruistic and generous person. It's not good enough. I'm a pretty good parent, a church member. I'm a moral person. I raise good kids who still go to church. It's not good enough. And I'm a pastor. I'm in ministry. I've dedicated my life to helping people see the glory of God, the holiness of God. That too it's not good enough. Although my life really hasn't changed much, 
I, I do feel very sorry for my sin. I'm, I, I understand I'm really sorry. Even though there's not a lot of change, even though I haven't really repented for my wrongdoing, I feel, though, as emotionally right before God. That's not good enough. Although emotions are good and God gives us emotions. I'm a very emotional person. But peace with God is not based and founded on a feeling. It is not subjective. It is an objective reality. And what God is requiring is holiness. And Isaiah is seeing that and feeling that in his bones and saying, woe is me. That translation, in some translations, it means ruined. That in the presence of a holy God, I feel like I am disintegrating because I cannot step foot into his presence. I am not right with God. The words of Paul are very accurate. All have fallen short. All have chosen their own way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or Psalm 24, three through five. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. These are, I understand, these are hard words. Is he even writing this? It's, it is convicting because who has that? No one. But yet I believe that this is the gospel process as it is meant to go. That not only is this, is this the way what Isaiah encounters is not the way that sub, someone becomes a Christian, but it is the way that we grow as a Christian. How does someone become a, here's how you, how do you know if you're a Christian? The gospel test is here. It's what Isaiah sees and says, woe is me. Here's how I can know that I'm a Christian and that I am growing as a Christian. I believe there's two ways. Number one, my vision of God and God's glory and God's goodness is growing. That the more I trust and see that he is good, that he is sovereign and that he's wise and that he has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin and that I see that God is not some cruel teacher who wants to inflict hard circumstances on my life, but I see that God is holy and that he sent his son that we may be made right before him and that I trust and see that in his goodness. And not only that, but that I am growing more and more in love with who he is. More and more am I trusting him in my prayer life. More and more do I see that he is not worthy of part of my life, not worthy of facets of my life, like my job or my marriage, but not my child ring or my finances. No, all of my life is worthy. All of my life falls under submission to him. This is what it means. This is what the Lordship of Christ means in our life. That God is holy and he has sent his son to pay for our sin. That we may, be, we may have holiness that we lack. When I was in college, I lived in a, in a house that my dad owned. And he was my landlord. And so he would, he had this, it was like a 900 square foot house. It was small and three people lived in it. But yet, you know, it was a great home near to campus. And so we, we lived in here. And oftentimes my dad would come in and just want to check on the place. See if the air conditioning was working. Seeing if you guys are taking care of it. Seeing if you haven't blew the house up. And he would come. And if he would come in, he would say, let me see your room, Caleb. Let me see your room, Nate. Let me see your room, Kyle. And he has every right to because he's a landlord. But it would be very awkward if he were to come in and I were to say, if he were to say, Kyle, let me see the kitchen, okay. Let me see Nate's room, okay. 
let me see your room, Kyle. And if I were to say, no, no, let's not go in there. What do you mean? No, I own this home. No, no, just, you know, it's got a mess. You know, don't go in there. It stinks. Now, that would be inappropriate. Why? Because even if it does stink, it's his. He owns the house. He is the landlord. The Christian life is not one where we segment off parts of our metaphorical life and say, you can have all of this, but this is mine. Now, the gospel calls us to say, all of my life falls under submission to your lordship. This is what it means to be a Christian, that I see and am growing in the glory and beauty of God. Is that happening in our lives? That you love God more than you ever did. That you're loving God more than you did the first day you trusted in him. It should be happening. And to the degree that we're seeing God's holiness, something else is happening. The opposite is happening as well. Just as in that we are seeing God more glorious than before, our realization of ourselves and our sinful nature, as Paul calls it, is becoming more HD. You start to see more and more of the sin in my life. I start to see more and more. I am actually more impatient than I thought. I am more lustful than I thought. I am more angry than I thought. I I am starting to to say, I am not that great of a person as I thought I was. And more and more is the need for Jesus growing. Sin is becoming more and more evident in our lives. Uh, There's a story in a book that I've read by David Platt. He gives an analogy of being in a cab. And he asked the cab, he was sharing the gospel with the cab driver. And he said, let me ask you something. He's trying to illustrate sin. What if I slapped you? And he was in the Middle East. And so he's in, I think he was in actually uh, Saudi Arabia. And he asked the cab driver, what if I slapped you? What would happen? And he would say, well, I'd throw you out. Well, what if I slapped one of the governing governors of the, of the provinces of, of Saudi Arabia? What would happen? He would say, oh, well, you'd be thrown in jail. You would have, you may even get beat. You know, th- this would be an incredible offense. You would never live this down. And then David Platt says, but what if I slapped the king of Saudi Arabia? And he paused, the cab driver paused, and he says, you would die. This is the severity of sin that Platt is trying to show. And more and more in the Christian life, are we seeing this as a reality in our life? You even start to see that even the good things that we do as Christians can be tainted with even ill motives. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that a Christian is someone who's, someone whose mouth has been shut. What has it been shut from? A Christian is someone whose mouth has been shut from boasting. There's nothing in me that I bring. I am, I am, a, I am completely reliant on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.27 talks about what then is bo- where then is boasting? And Paul says, it is excluded. A sinful man, a holy God, how can these two things be reconciled? And what happens next? What we're gonna see in verse six and seven and eight is what I would say is the crux of the Bible. It's what the Bible, I think, is getting at. The whole message of the Bible, that the infinite becomes intimate. That the holy God of this universe becomes intimate with Isaiah. Isaiah has just seen the most glorious display he has ever seen. But I would say this is not the greatest part of this passage. 
The greatest part of this passage is that the infinite has become intimate. That it's not the holiness, the transcendent holiness that Isaiah sees, but it's actually the holiness that is about to be transferred to Isaiah. He gives a vision for us. Notice what God does. A seraphim, which a seraphim doesn't move until God tells it, flies with a coal of amber to the alt- from a coal from the altar. Why the altar? What does that even mean? Well, the altar was, the sa- was a part of the sacrificial system. It was where the high priest would take an animal and sacrifice it. And the blood would atone for the sin of the people. And the blood would, the animal would be consumed. In other words, to come into the presence of God, to have intimacy with the infinite, sin must be paid for. One commentator says, there is no atonement apart from bloodshed. The infinite, infinite has just initiated intimacy with Isaiah. God comes to Isaiah in the midst of his reckoning with sin and pardons his sin. He takes the coal and cauterizes his mouth. What does that mean? Most commentators are gonna say that's the purification that Isaiah, his sin has just been atoned for. I would say Isaiah 6 is actually pointing to Isaiah 53, 10 through 11. Look at this, look at this glorious passage. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah 6 is all pointing to Isaiah 53, which is, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Look at the grace and glory of what God does to Isaiah. In other words, what we can see here is the God who split the Red Sea in the Exodus for Israel. The God who says to Job, where were you when I laid out the foundations of the world? The, the God who says to Moses, when Moses in Exodus 33 says, let me see your glory. And God says, you can't handle it. Hide in the rock, I'm gonna pass by. Is the same God who comes in the second person of the Trinity and atones for our sin, dies in your place, gives you a holiness that you do not have in and of yourself. And we are made right with God. And not only that, he atones for your sin, but he takes away your guilt. He says your guilt and your sin is atoned for. In other words, he who sees it all bears it all. I love that the Bible talks about guilt here. Guilt and shame. What do guilt and shame do for us? They cause isolation. In the garden, what happens? Adam and Eve run and God calls for them. And he says, we were naked. We were hiding. And what does God say? Who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? Guilt and shame have a way of isolating us. But the God of the Bible runs to those who are guilty. There's one commentator looking at the life of Jesus and who he interacted with. Says it's almost as if God, if Jesus didn't ask, didn't act very, very Christian. Tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, vile, sinful people, but none of them needed help seeing their guilt. They felt their guilt. They knew they were guilty, but Jesus ran to them. God is the God who runs to those who are guilty, but we gotta admit our guilt. And once that happens, once Isaiah admits and says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, 
what happens? God runs to him, sends, a, sends an angel, and atones for his sin and his guilt. I'm going to go back to the Saudi Arabia analogy. Imagine if that king who was slapped by that person said, you have committed a grave offense. You surely deserve to die. But I will step down and atone for your sin. And by atoning for your sin, all, my, all I command now is after I die for you to proclaim my glory and tell people about my goodness. We hear that and we say, the king of Saudi Arabia? Not likely. But what did we just read? What did we just read? Not the king of Saudi Arabia, not, not the king of, of some country. We read about the king of glory, the Lord of hosts, Adonai. That, that's that word, sovereign one. Yahweh, we, just, we have just seen how God, the infinite, has just initiated intimacy to us in this person and work of Christ. In the gospel, those who would never be made holy on their own have now just been made holy. God is in the business of making the unholy holy. You are holy if you're a Christian because you have been justified before a holy God in Christ. You are being made holy through sanctification and you will one day be made perfectly holy in glorification. I wanna end with two applications for us. Two applications. We see two applications from this text. A grace-filled community and a missional community. Right here, God in his sovereignty sees the sin of Isaiah and Isaiah's sin is against him. It's not against people horizontally. It's against the God of the Bible and yet he takes away that guilt. He gives a greater, greater grace. The question for us, I believe, are we people who are charitable in our graciousness towards others in this church? If God who is holy, holy, holy has been sinned against severely and yet initiates intimacy with us. That is a call for us to be gracious with one another. This is the call to pursue graciousness and forgiveness with one another. One pastor says, no one gives the law so readily and so foolishly to others like those who believe that they can keep it. But no one is so liberal and gracious with grace and gives it to others like those who know they need it. And that is a word for us as the church? Are we gracious not just with one another, but are we gracious with everyone in the world? Thomas Watson says, you that cannot love another because of his infirmities, how would you have God love you? And lastly, let me close with this, a missional community. What God is showing us is that the atonement of our sin is often paired with a commission unto mission into the surrounding area. God brings us in to send us out. He saves to always send. He atones for sin in his glory and then sends us out to proclaim his glory. This is the biblical process. We see glory, we receive grace, and we go unto mission. We willingly volunteer and say, go and send me. Most of us agree that Christians are in here should be mission-minded. And we talk about like a lot about this in our DNA at Redeemer, the difference between mission-minded and missional. What's the difference? A mission-minded person is someone who readily agrees that we should be, care about people hearing the gospel. So I go on a mission trip or I give money and all those things are great and we encourage that. But the difference between a mission-minded person and a missional person 
is someone who is actively looking for opportunities to share the gospel in their surrounding area, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, everywhere. Where has God had me? We've willingly volunteer and say, here I am, send me. I love what one commentator says, John Oswald. He says this, having believed the certainty that he was about to be crushed into non-existence by the very holiness of God and having received an unsought for and unmerited complete cleansing. And what else would he rather do than hurl himself into God's service? Those who need to be coerced are perhaps too little aware of the immensity of God's grace towards them. This is the gospel. The gospel, the infinite initiating intimacy with us. This is the beauty of a relationship with Christ. My question to you is, do you have that? If you don't have that, the gospel calls you to cry out to God and he will run to you who are guilty. This is the good news of Christ. The gospel is not just a message that makes me want to sing because it does make me want to sing. The gospel is a message that compels me to tell somebody about it. Before we... Before we pray, we invite you to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is a meal that's reserved for Christians. We have juice and wine. Wine is in the cup marked with twine. We encourage you to do this as your conscience leads you. Um, if you're not a Christian in here, we encourage you to take Christ by faith, that you don't need a symbol or a sacrament. We encourage you to take the real thing. We encourage you to trust in Christ into this infinite God who came in the person of Christ and atoned for our sin. If you'd like to talk to someone about that, there, there will be prayer responders in the back and we'd love to talk with you and pray with you. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are holy, unlike us. We have all gone astray and gone to our own way, but you are the good shepherd who pursues us, who initiates salvation to us, who flies to take away our sin and guilt and to restore intimacy with you. Thank you for your infinite nature becoming intimate in the person and work of Christ. Help us to have the same vision of you and the same words as Isaiah, send me through this next year. Amen.